You guys better applaud Kate for being so brave this morning. I don't think a lot of you knew what it took to get up here and do that. It's powerful. And I think, um, you know, we all come to church. We all put on our good Sunday shirts. I like mine. Um, But being a pastor, I have found out that no matter what it looks like, people have stuff going on all the time. And it's dark, and it is hard, and to be able, um, for Kate to be able to stand up here and be vulnerable about a chapter of her life that was so difficult, I, I respect her so much for being able to do that. And she's right. Um, Vine Medical represents this area of the church where we get to put our money where our mouth is, quite literally, for a group of people who contend so passionately for the protection of life. Um, sometimes the way we treat people who are faced with this miracle, even amidst broken circumstances, is, is shameful. Um, a large, large percentage, actually a majority of people who go through abortion processes uh, are, are people from evangelical backgrounds. The shame and the guilt, the narrative that can keep people in the dark, that is not what we should be known for. And so what Vine Medical does is provide options, provide hope, provide light for people in situations um, where they have a miracle growing in their life. And we get to come alongside them and resource them. So thank you, Kate. She's left the room, but thank you, Kate, for um, being so brave and vulnerable. And uh, yeah, that was worship unto God. So, Well... Before we jump into the passage today, um, I actually have one more announcement. You're like, how many announcements are we going to get? We are going to actually put a pause on our Spanish translation team for the time being. Now, since Christmas, we have had a uh, group of people who have faithfully stepped stepped up to the plate of taking on a very uniquely challenging task of translating a live sermon in real time, which is really hard. And right now, the team is really small. And the work is very challenging. And so we want to be conscious of our team's capacity and care for our people well. When we build something together, we want to make sure that we are building something together that is viable and sustainable and healthy. And so we're going to continue to translate our signage and our slides into Spanish. And we're going to offer the option of an AI uh, companion translator through our um, devices in the lobby to those who may still benefit from some added clarity to the words being spoken on the platform. So our translation is not going away completely. Um, We're just putting a pause on this specific team for the sake of health and sustainability. You know, almost a year ago when I said yes to stepping into this role, I kept asking God, okay, what do you want to do here? I asked him, what have you done? And uh, I asked him, where are you taking us next? There, there was so much health in this community already here at Red Hills that I was blessed by, right? You guys are um, filled with, with generous people, filled with a culture of service. You guys have a gift of hospitality and kindness. You guys practice vulnerability. And my question to God was simply, okay, this is great. What's next? And there have been many bullet points to what I feel like was the Spirit's response to me in prayer. And one of them was that I saw this beautifully diverse and multicultural expression of the kingdom of God here in Newburgh. I saw that. Uh, I saw this vision of people from multiple backgrounds and languages worshiping together here at Red Hills, embodying this promise of revelation. And I still believe that this is where God wants to take us. I really do. But I want to make sure that how we get there 
is healthy and sustainable and in his time and not in mine, right? So as we build up the team, as we prepare, we're just going to put a pause on this particular service, but we're going to be asking questions also like, is this the best way to get to that vision and to get to that picture? What are some aspects of multicultural unity that we can lean into beyond and even before we get to things like translation? Um, what we're building together is, is, is uh, the question is, how do we create a sense of belonging for every human who steps into the four walls of our church? So I'm inviting you, church, to pray with me. Let's pray together that God can reveal to us how to build an atmosphere here at Red Hills that is uh, welcoming to all cultures and languages where everyone has a seat at the table and we all feel a sense of belonging, celebration, and collaboration. I think I had this mentality that if we build it, they will come. But maybe what we found ourselves in a posture now is when they come, they're going to help us build it together. Um, so I want to say thank you to our translation teams, particularly Katya, um, Tabitha, and Abby for faithfully serving, serving in a very, very unique and challenging way. Um, so we're going to continue to contend for this picture of unity here in Newburgh and to bring the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen. All right. Now we can finally get to the Bible and stuff. So today, we are continuing in our summer series called Our Origin Story, and we're journeying through the book of Acts, right? The heart behind this series is to look back on the genesis of the church in its context to discover what it looks like for us to be that church today. We've jumped into the series with the belief that the church, if the church, can become all that it was meant to be, then it is, in my opinion, still the best hope for the world. But we live in a reality where the church is often not what it was intended to be, right? The kingdom of God is here, but not here. It's now, but it's not yet. The church was meant to be this extension of God's heart and healing in the world. And now we live in this tension where we see how much good the church is capable of when it's being led by the Spirit, and yet how much damage the church can do when humans try to shove their agendas into God's mission, right? How many of you have ever seen the movie Thor? Thor? Marvel Comics movie? A lot of people mistake me for the actor who played Thor. I understand, <laughs> but I'm not him. Um, so the comic book writers responsible for Thor, they basically translated uh, these characters from North myth Norse mythology into these uh, 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 transdimensional aliens that, that protect humans. And Thor, in this comic book series, is the god of thunder, right? He's this powerful super being who's charged with the protection of Earth, and in this movie, came out in like 2011, I think, uh, Odin, the king of Asgard, gives his son Thor this weapon to protect Earth. It's called Mjolnir. It's this massive hammer made out of this indestructible Uru metal, right? Forged in the heart of a dying star. Now, in the beginning of the movie, we open up to this elegant ceremony where all of Asgard's armies and citizens are gathered together to pay homage to the new king of Asgard, Thor, who will take over the throne for his father. And Odin gives this speech explaining that this hammer, Mjolnir, is unparalleled both as a weapon to destroy and as a tool to build. That's how he describes this hammer. Spoiler alert, Thor turns out to be kind of selfish and arrogant and cavalier with his powers, proves himself to be unworthy of this weapon, so Odin strips him of his powers, sends him to Earth so that he can learn the lessons of uh, compassion and humility. Our influence in the world as the church is like that. It's a mighty hammer. The spiritual life we invite people into has powerful implications in a person's life. How we steward 
a person's worship to God can be an incredible tool to build the kingdom, or it can be a devastating weapon in a person's soul. Sometimes we get to celebrate and acknowledge the good we see God doing in and through us, and sometimes we have to humble ourselves and receive correction to sober ourselves and see how we have mishandled the church that God has given us. Now, what we will see in today's passage is a great example of how much good the church is capable of and how seriously God judges the poison that will try to enter the bloodstream of the church. It conveys what seems like a really severe judgment, and we'll unpack that in a bit. But what it shows us right away is that God takes very seriously how we conduct ourselves in the church. There are documentaries and podcasts that are popping up left and right, right, exposing how devastating the corruption of a church can be, how much hurt that poison can do. So today we're going to wrestle with this idea, but first we're going to take a look at this passage in Acts. We're going to enter into the vision of what the church was becoming and what the implications are in their culture. And then we're going to examine the lessons that we learn from this passage for us today. We're going to humble ourselves to receive the correction of the Holy Spirit, but we're also going to fix our eyes on the hope that if the Holy Spirit is the one who is guiding and leading us, that there is great beauty and transformation and purpose that awaits us. Amen? Amen. All right, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It'll be on the screen. Now, the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and bought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it all at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite named uh, Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold his field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge. He kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back parts of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard it. The young men came and wrapped up his body, then carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to put the Holy Spirit, the Lord, oh, sorry, the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead, so they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard these things. This is the word of the Lord. All right, have a good week. We'll see you next time. <laughs> Let's pray. (laughs) Holy Spirit, we trust you, and we know that your word is good, and we know that you are good, so nothing that comes from you or from your word cannot be anything but good. So we ask that you would help us to lean into your knowledge and your wisdom, and that we would learn to trust in you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, I'll be honest. There was a part of me that really didn't want to teach on this passage today. We don't have enough time to hit every section of every chapter of Acts before the series is over, so it would have been really easy for me to sidestep this in the name of efficiency. But God made clear to me a long time ago that I was not allowed to gloss over difficult topics and passages. So, whatever my failings, you at least have that. If there's a hard question, we'll talk about it. Today we're, tracking, we're tackling a, a really tough passage that deals with some pretty severe and definitive judgment from God, yeah? But what I've found is that when we explore the passages, these difficult passages, we may not be able to walk away with a pretty bow on our feelings, but we can walk away growing in our trust in God and what is his goodness. So that's what we're going to do today. Let's get into the text. We'll take a look at the context of this passage. So last, last week, Emmanuel, he taught out of Acts 3. When the Spirit, through Peter and John, they healed a man born without the ability to walk, right? It's the first specific miracle recorded in the book of Acts. And we see in the book of Acts as a whole, it's a recreation story. It's, it's, a, it's a re-Genesis story, right? In Genesis, the Spirit of God hovers over the chaos of the deep, brings order, and breathes life into human beings and gives them a mission. In Acts, the Holy Spirit hovers over the disciples, indwells them, and gives them a new mission. God has created... Man has dismantled, and now God is recreating. Do we see how this is happening? So after Peter and John see this man healed, now we didn't get to read this part of the passage, but after they see this man healed, the religious elite, they arrest them. If that's not insecurity, I don't know what is. They're arresting them. And Peter tells them that the one they condemned, Jesus, is the one through whom God is building his new creation. Peter calls Christ the cornerstone. Now, uh, we're going to sing that song later, but the cornerstone is this piece of the foundation that was used in ancient architecture that would guide where the rest of the stones would go. So without the cornerstone, you were kind of aimless and didn't know how to build. Christ is the cornerstone on which the church is being built. Peter, later in one of his epistles, says that we are living stones, right? So Acts is this picture of the Spirit upon Christ building the new creation. Are we tracking? Okay. So it used to be that the temple housed the presence of God, but now God has breathed his presence into people, and we have now become the living temples, living stones, right? And this is the, uh, it's creating a lot of controversy in first century Palestine. See, we're 2,000 years out from this moment, and Christianity today is the largest religious movement in the entire globe. But back then, Christians were perceived by the masses to be this fringe group of cultists, that's how they were perceived. They're gathering in front of the temple, and they're teaching these heretical teachings from this guy named Jesus who got executed by the government. They're stirring up unwanted attention, right? It would be like going to see Ed Sheeran at the Moda Center, and there's a guy out front with a guitar like doing his own thing. They're, they're upstaging the Pharisees and the teachings. But the Spirit is growing this church exponentially. Some of you are like, who's Ed Sheeran? Never mind. Um, <laughs> I heard someone ask, who was that? Um, <laughs> It's throwback Sunday. I need to keep my references older. Um, within a couple of weeks, the movement had grown from a few hundred people to almost 10,000. And this is slowly becoming a revolution. But this revolution is different because it's not filled with people who are rebels or zealots. It's filled with people who are experiencing the infilling of the Spirit, the transformative power of Jesus, and they are living in new lives where their citizenship is not to the temple. Their citizenship is not to the Romans. Their citizenship is to the kingdom of heaven. It's mind-blowing. God living in them. And now this move of God is growing, and they're finding that they need to now start thinking logistically because there's a lot of people involved. They're finding that there are people that have uh, needs. They're meeting those needs spiritually. They're meeting those needs physically. 
Miracles and healings are taking place. Forgiveness is being offered. Unity is taking place. And what we see at the end of chapter 4 is the church showing up for one another's tangible needs, right? Economic life for those living under Roman rule could be very difficult. Taxation was often oppressive and crippling for the poor, the orphan, and the widow. It kept powerful people in power, and it kept disadvantaged people disadvantaged. And so the church, who is now operating with these kingdom mindsets of Jesus, who said, blessed are the poor, right? Now they are submitting to the shared ownership of all their belongings. They've stepped into the understanding that anything and everything that anyone has belongs to the kingdom of God. They're taking very seriously Jesus' teachings not to store up their treasures on earth, but to value kingdom currency, the currency of heaven. They're trusting that God's going to provide for their needs when they care for the poor and the sick among them. It's this beautiful image of people caring for one another in self-giving love, right? Now, when we read this, it's very easy to try to transpose their culture and context onto our time and our culture, right? Sometimes that's not helpful. First century Palestine was a very different context than the 21st century Western world. It's a different time. So when we read this, the thought has come to my mind. I'm sure it's come to yours. So if I'm going to live up to my place in God's church, do I need to sell everything I own for the sake of the mission? I mean, if that's what they did, why aren't we doing that? And I think the answer is, maybe we should, kind of, but not really. When we look at what's happening in the early church, there may be some realities of our time which make that picture specifically difficult today. But there is a heart here. There is a heart that I think can invite, that we can invite to inform how we live today. I think what we see here is a heart of trust in God to provide and generosity to care for others. See, the enemy is very effective at making us feel like we don't have enough and that we won't have enough and that we won't be provided for. This is a scarcity mindset. So our reaction when we're faced with this fear is to hoard what we have, to step into this mad scramble for power, to feel like we need to get ahead and to hold tightly that which we do not want to lose, right? That's what scarcity does to us. But what Jesus invites to is a peace that comes from the God of Psalm 23, right? It's a posture of trust. The Lord is my shepherd because I have everything I need. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I lack nothing. See how God cares for the sparrow? Does he not much more love you, right? This is the peace that he's inviting us into. So really what I think the invitation for us is as we read this passage is to accept this truth and peace that when I commit to the Christian life, I become a steward of what was always God's in the first place. When I commit to the Christian life, I become a steward of what was always God's in the first place. This is really the main idea of this whole sermon. If you get it, then feel free to pack up early and head on out. But when we say yes to the life of the, in the way of Jesus, we go from this place of insecurity and scarcity where I'm anxiously holding on to what is mine out of fear that I won't have enough, and we move towards a life of trust where I see everything that I have as a grace. It's a grace from God, which ultimately belongs to him. It's a resource of the kingdom. So maybe you don't need to sell all your stuff on Craigslist and give your money to the church, but maybe in your heart, you need to accept that all you own actually belongs to Jesus. Everything. Maybe what Christ is inviting you to is a new way of seeing what you've been given. I don't need to be possessive of what I have because it all belongs to God anyway, right? 
This is a big part of why my wife and I give to the church. It's an act of worship which reinforces this truth that everything I have belongs to God. And even giving a significant percentage away does not mean that I will be without if I trust in God. That's why my wife and I give. Perhaps he wants to move my heart from ownership to stewardship, from possessiveness to generosity. So when the Holy Spirit moves in us, he moves us from insecurity to trust. He moves us from ownership to stewardship. And he moves us from possessiveness to generosity. There's a really cool story that I want to share with you. Um, There was a woman in our church who moved here from out of state. And she really needed a car. But she was praying and she felt like God told her, don't buy a car. I'm going to provide one for you. A few weeks goes by, month, two months, three months, six months goes by. And she's thinking, okay, should I start thinking about buying a car now? And she receives a word from a friend. Hey, if you, if you buy a car now, you're going to miss out on what God's given you. Then we found out that there's a couple in our church who went from needing two cars to now only needing one. And they asked the church, hey, we're looking to give our car away to someone. Do you know anyone that needs one? And now this woman has been given this car that this couple had. Isn't this amazing? This is the Spirit speaking to a girl over here, and then six months later speaking to a couple over here, and a need being, need being met. That's the church being what it's supposed to be. Maybe it's just that simple. Maybe the lesson for us is to see what we steward as an opportunity to bless others. Not just our money, but our time. Our resources, our skills, our passions. What if when we got paid, when we bought a house, when we bought a car, or we found ourselves with some flexible time, or we found ourselves with some physical strength, like me, or we found ourselves with a particular, <laughs> joking, um, a particular wealth of knowledge or a skill set in a certain area? What if instead of asking, what do I want to do with my stuff, with my thing, with my time, we instead ask, God, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do with what is already yours? right? I think there's an opportunity here to ask for help, too, when you need it, right? There are probably so many people in this room who are in need right now, but pride gets in the way. We don't want to inconvenience anyone. We don't have a right to feel the way we feel or, or, or have the needs that we— that, that's not the point. It's not the point. The body of Christ is here to serve one another, There should not be any of us that don't have what we need if we are a family. That's the bottom line. That is the bottom line. No one here should not have what they need if you're a part of this family. But sometimes that's on you. If you're not willing to tell people, hey, you know what, I'm actually, I'm I'm struggling right now. I can't tell you how many times God's come through for me and my wife. So many times where we think, I, I don't even know how that bill's going to get paid next month. I, I have no idea. And then someone comes through, and it's always a Christian. It's always someone who heard from Jesus, and it's always really random. <laughs> God will take care of us if we invite the church to do so. We see what God is, is setting, in, he's setting his people apart, right? He's making them holy, setting them apart. But here's the thing. Holiness is not so much just about personal piety. That's what we tend to think about holiness is. But it's so much more than just being righteous and moral as an individual, right? God is making his church perfect in his love, in the way that they love one another. He's setting them apart in the way that they enact care and justice for one another. In Isaiah 58, we see God calling out religious piety that operates without justice. People who fast and pray, 
but failed to care for the community. This is what the prophet says. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide for the poor, the wanderer, with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? This is holiness. So you can write this down. At the heart of holiness is generosity and justice for the poor and the oppressed. At the heart of holiness is generosity and justice for the poor and the oppressed. Now listen, I know, justice can feel like a very loaded word, can't it? I say it and I feel the tension rise up in the room as to all your different definitions of justice, right? But guess what? Our political leaders did not invent the word. Justice is God's. It has been from the very beginning. So to seek a heart of justice in our community is not to be political, it's to be Christ-like, right? So God's people are coming together and they're living this radically generous way and they're experiencing the soul of transformation of God from enacting justice in their communities by providing tangibly for those who are in need. There's this congruence between their spiritual wholeness and their social wholeness. Again, not a political word, not a political invention, but a Christian value. The first book that we ever went through together, do you guys remember? James. I miss James, don't you? James 2 says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. We get to see that when the Spirit of God is alive in the community, His presence purifies and sanctifies like fire, and it empowers like a mighty wind. The transformation of the inner life exemplified by the community's actions, right? So when we meet this couple then, Ananias and Sapphira, it's likely that Ananias and Sapphira were very, very wealthy, and they are getting in on this vision for having everything in common, and they sell one of their properties. But instead of giving the proceeds to the apostles like they said they would, they kept a percentage for themselves, and then they lied about it. So Peter apparently knew about this. The passage doesn't tell us how he knew, but it seems like the Spirit must have made him aware of the situation. And he confronts Ananias first. And from what we read in his reaction, there are two things, two Two things um, that Peter is grieved by. First, they promised to give the proceeds to the people of the church, but then they withheld some, which is pretty messed up, right? This whole community, including those who are poor and don't have very much, are giving everything so that the church can care for the people who are in need and people who go without. And these rich people sell one of their properties, and they're keeping some from themselves. This is a group of people who are all in. They are choosing the way of generosity with one another, caring for the poor, the widow, and the orphan among them. But this couple isn't willing to sacrifice as much as the others. So there's that. But what really seems to get Peter's blood boiling, what seems to grieve his heart, is the deception. He says, why has Satan, really intense language, which remember, he got called Satan once, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? The weight of those words. At the end of this interaction, Ananias drops dead. Now, to us, this seems really harsh, 
And maybe it is. But, and perhaps we read this and we think, well, I would never do that to someone. And you're right. You would and should never do that because you are not the judge of the living and the dead. You and I are not qualified to make those kinds of calls, right? Justice belongs to the Lord. We leave that to him. We have to look at this moment in Acts and recognize this is actually the only time this is recorded happening in the New Testament. It's the only time. But I highly doubt it was the last time that someone practiced deception in the church. In fact, I know that that's not the case, right? So this seems to be something that happened once during the inception of the church to communicate a very important point. If we look back on the Old Testament, if we remember how God's presence was regarded, his holiness was so pure and perfect and mighty and powerful that our impurity in his presence would kill us, right? That's how the Old Testament regarded it. Moses, when he said, Lord, I want to see your glory, God goes, no one can look on my glory and live. So how about this? You get into the cleft of the rock here and I'll walk in front of you. <laughs> and then Moses comes down the mountain and his face is glowing, right? His presence is majestic. The Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence would descend during times of worship, we see accounts in the Old Testament of people even accidentally touching it, and they drop dead right where they stand. A couple of weeks ago, we referenced Isaiah 6, right, where the prophet had this vision where he sees God's presence fill the temple, and he goes, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips. He freaks out, thinks he's going to die. But then an angel of the Lord comes in this vision, takes a coal, and presses it to the lips of the prophet. And he's cleansed and he's purified, right? Allowing him to remain in God's presence. So the presence of God was regarded as this mighty, holy, sacred manifestation. And to come to him in a way that was cavalier or irreverent or impure was to invite death on yourself. So there were all these cleansing rituals that the priest would undergo in order to enter into the holy of holies, the presence of God, with reverence. But what Jesus did was forgive and cleanse, Right? Remember what Jesus said before he was crucified, you are clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. And then he sends the Holy Spirit, God's presence to dwell or tabernacle, temple, in his presence. Are we tracking? So God's presence is holy, so holy that to behold it as we are is to invite death. But Jesus cleanses us and baptizes us in in his spirit, purifies us so that we can become vessels of that presence, right? So back to Ananias and Sapphira. What they have done is to assume that they're pulling one over on God's people, on the humans, that they're deceiving Peter and the church. But their sin was not just against them, it was against God. They attempted to enter the life of the church, the new holy of holies, while clinging to their old lives, while clinging to their sin, and they approached the presence of God with deception in their hearts and not reverence. And God was making it very clear that this was not to be tolerated That willful deception was not going to be allowed in the church. Allowing this kind of corruption in the church, especially at this early stage, at its inception, would have been poison in the veins of this movement, right? One of the Ten Commandments is, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord. We tend to have thought about this as like, well, I shouldn't pair God with a cuss word or stub my toe and say, Jesus Christ. But really what this means is, do not misrepresent who I am. Do not misuse, misappropriate my name. Do not put your agenda into the church in my name. A person who accomplishes evil in the name of God, a person who justifies injustice in the name of God, is inviting judgment on themselves. A pastor who uses the church as a cover for abuse or for crime is going to have to answer to a just God. 
The truth of the matter is we don't know what was in Ananias and Sapphira's hearts, but we know that the Spirit knew. And I really don't think this is a prescription for us, right? Execute those whose motives are suspect. Again, we're not the judge of the living and the dead. This is a prophetic warning to the church, right? That trying to leverage God's names for our own agendas, trying to misappropriate his name, this is judgment upon ourselves. The scriptures show us time and time again that God is slow in his judgment, that he's patient, that he's abundant in his mercy, that he's kind, but there is no sin that he can tolerate. But there's also no sin that he's unwilling to forgive and cleanse us of. But what he desires from us is humility. We need humility. If we humble ourselves, when we practice rhythms of regular repentance, God is able to do a lot of that. But if we're unwilling to humble ourselves, if we remain prideful, if we're unwilling to sober ourselves to our own sin and perspectives, he can't save us from what we're not willing to let go of, right? Jesus is abundant in his mercy to forgive. He shows us so much grace to the humble. That's why, but the, but the prideful get themselves in trouble, right? That's why the Pharisees always got on his bad side. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They were really practiced at looking really great on the, on the outside, but they were unwilling to admit that they needed transformation in their souls. They were unwilling to admit it, right? Pride and control, they act as these barriers. They harden our hearts. They encase our souls in these shells of rot. They enclose us in these tombs of decay. And with that kind of life, Death is not an if, but a when. But if we give ourselves to him, if we offer not just a percentage, but our whole selves, he is able and willing to forgive everything. Look, this is not a story about having to walk on eggshells around the presence of God. It's an invitation to fully surrender yourself to Jesus. Because everything you have and everything you experience, it belongs to God anyway. I had this mentor. He and I were working out some questions around finances, and we were discussing whether or not there was a New Testament argument to contend for tithing, giving 10% to the local church. And he told me that he did not believe the New Testament provided a solid argument for tithing. It's the last thing you expected to hear today, right? Everyone's like, yes, no more giving. <laughs> no, you guys are so generous. I could tell you not to give today, and you would give more. But I was confused. I was like, okay, so we shouldn't be giving 10% of our resources to the church? And he was like, there is no argument for 10% in the New Testament. He said, I think 10% is a modest start. Ooh, plot twist, right? <laughs> he went on to explain that if we are asking ourselves what the bare minimum of financial sacrifice is required to worship, then we've completely missed the point. That being a Christian is about leading a life in which we believe that everything we have is his already. Yes, giving to the local church is important, but if we're just giving 10% so that God can get off our backs about the other 90, we've missed the point, right? When we read Acts 4 and 5, I don't think it means that we need to sell all of our properties and start a commune, although I think in another life I would have made a really great cult leader. <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke. Um, everyone's like, mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> Luckily, the cult around Star Trek, that was good. That was good. Um, no, luckily our polity will not allow for me to go off the rails like that. Now, when we read Acts chapters 4 and 5, we should be inspired to trust that everything we have, when we say yes to Jesus, we realize that it's always been his, right? Not just our money, but our time, our passions, our secrets, our breathing, our eating. I become a living tabernacle. My whole life becomes a sacrifice of worship, of pleasing incense to the Lord, right? 
Christianity is an all-in kind of invitation, right? I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because we're running out of time. But here's the deal. We've all sinned. All of us. We all have stuff. We all have stuff we don't want to talk about. We all have stuff that's hidden in the shadows that we don't want to invite the light into. But here's the thing. If we are willing to offer up those things to Jesus, every time we will be surprised by just how good his love is, by just how perfect his forgiveness is, with just how enormous his grace is. You will be surprised every time. 2 Chronicles 7, 14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. So what does it look like to be the Church of Acts today? First is lead lives of generosity. We become stewards of what has always belonged to God. We move from a mindset of scarcity to a mindset of abundance. And we seek opportunities to provide and bless others with what God has given us. Pretty simple. Second thing is we become humble and reverent. We regularly acknowledge the parts of my life that I want to hide from God. I practice rhythms of humble repentance. And I take matters of corruption and deception seriously. I'm going to leave this on the screen if you want to keep writing it or if you want to take a a picture or whatever. I'd like to invite us into a prayer exercise to provide some space for you and God to have a conversation and to wrestle with these ideas. And I'm just going to leave the stage. I'm going to pray us out, and we're going to spend three minutes just praying. I'll give you some prompts that will go on the screen in just a moment. And I want you to work some stuff out with God. Then the worship team is going to come up, and we're going to sing together. And then the prayer team will be here at the end of the service. If there's some stuff here that you feel like, I need to talk to someone about it. Like, it's good talking to, to, to God about these things, of course, but there's a, there's a kind of freedom that comes with being able to confess to a human being, to flesh and blood. So if you'd like to do that, we're going to provide some space for that. Does that sound good? Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would just breathe and fill the room right now. We just ask that we would experience your love and your grace and forgiveness, that we would find in ourselves, in our convictions, in our guilt, that your grace is sufficient, that you are good. And we ask that you would transform our hearts and our minds, not just to live trying to give enough or do enough, but that we would live lives that are enough, that we are to give generously out of what has already already belonged to you all along. I pray that people in this room who feel like they have need, who are unable to give, who feel like 10% is too much, 5% feels like too much, and that they barely can give anything at all. I pray that those who feel like they are in need would feel the courage to step out and to admit, I need help. And I pray that your church, Holy Spirit, would be the kind of church that is quick and willing to provide aid. We love you and we thank you for what you do. In your name we pray. Amen.